Hello, and welcome back for another episode of the Sassnack Files. This is Chelsea, and I am so glad to have you guys here today to talk with me about 210 Preston Pans. And we are going to have a good time, lots to break down for you, but first I've got a few announcements. So the first is that if you guys haven't been on social media or checked out the Sassnack Files blog yet, I am working on a book club for the first book in the Outlander series, Outlander, and I'm getting ready to start part two. It should post on this coming Friday, which I suppose for those of you listening is probably the day that this podcast comes out. So a little confusing, but I am getting ready to post part two for that. Also, I posted recently on the blog this week about notable Jacobites in Season 2 and Book 2 of Outlander, including some of the gents that we're going to talk about in this episode today. So, I'm very informed and ready to educate, so (laughs) I'm very excited. It's actually kind of a nice change of pace, because normally I don't have any clue who these historical characters are that we're talking about, but today I've got a little bit more background information for you. And I'm not going to go over the whole kit and caboodle because, like I said, you guys can head over to the blog and check that out if you are so interested. Also, on Facebook, we are working on a best episode of Season 2 bracket. This week, we started voting on the Elite Eight, which included some fantastic episodes, including Preston Pan's Faith, Dragonfly and Amber, Not in Scotland Anymore, and several others. So. We're going to be concluding on voting here in the next couple of days for the Elite Eight, but make sure to check back this weekend or early next week for the final four. I'm sure it is going to be a doozy. Also, while I have your guys' ear, I want to remind you that you can find the Sassanac Files on both Instagram and Facebook. Always got a bunch of fun stuff to share on there. I try to share any of the cast's updates anything to do with Outlander on the Stars page, any news that we get as far as season six filming or news about Go Tell the Bees That I'm Gone, which is Diana's ninth book in the Outlander series, which, fingers crossed, is getting ready to be finished sometime in the near future. Before we get into the episode, I want to take a moment to ask you guys to please, if you are enjoying what you're listening to with the Sassnack Files, head on over to your favorite listening platform and leave a rating and review for those that may be interested in the Sassnack Files but aren't quite wanting to take the leap. Just leave a little piece of encouragement or, you know, whatever you think about the podcast in general. With that all out of the way, let's get into 210 Preston Pans. This one is one of those episodes that is jam-packed with historical stuff because it's about the Battle of Preston Pans, right? It's one of the most famous battles in Scottish history. All the Scottish actors in the show grew up learning about the 45 and all of the most famous battles, Preston Pans and Culloden being the two most famous, even though there were several others, including the Siege of Carlisle and Falkirk and things like that. So, Preston Pans is an important one. And it was literally like like General Murray said, fortune drops out of the sky and right onto our doorstep. Literally the only reason that the Scots routed the English army at Preston Pans. It was because some local 
in this show, his name is Mr. Anderson, came up and was like, hey, I know that you guys are uh, not sure what to do because there's a bog at the bottom between these two hills that your armies are camped on, but I know a way around it. And that is literally the only reason that the Battle of Preston Pans happened, guys. <laughs> um, so what I'm going to do is go through kind of where the Jacobite army is in this grand scheme of the 1745 Jacobite Rebellion, what has happened, who the key players are, all of that, just to kind of clarify as we move forward into this episode and the rest of the Jacobite Rebellion. Last episode, we left with Jamie and his troops arriving at the camp and all was well. Just we pray. We are ready to get this rebellion rolling. Then we fast forward to Preston Pans, which is several months into the battle. They have already taken the cities of Perth and Edinburgh without a shot fired, which I think has given Prince Charlie a little sense of false security. I think that they took the residents of those cities and the garrisons stationed there completely unaware. They had no idea they were coming and they weren't prepared to deal with the Jacobite forces. And Jamie says as much when he's talking to Prince Charlie. He's like, look, I know that you think this is going to be a cakewalk, but I think the fact that we haven't had any trouble so far is really misleading. And then we've got his two advisors, his key advisors that we're meeting, which are John O'Sullivan and George Murray. John O'Sullivan is an Irishman who fought in the... French forces for a long time, and then kind of through his association with several French soldiers, met Prince Charlie and kind of wriggled into the Jacobite cause, found himself a solid foothold in the Jacobite hierarchy. And so Charlie has known him for several years and looks to him as a trusted advisor. The problem is, is that Charlie's general, Lord George Murray, hates O'Sullivan. Like, they do not get along at all. They don't agree on anything. And George Murray is not a unexperienced person. There's a reason that he is in charge of the Jacobite forces. He actually fought in the 1715 Jacobite Rising he didn't have a role as an officer, but he was involved in that. And he was he went so far as to support and fight with Spanish troops at the Battle of Glenshiel, which not very many members of Scottish aristocracy fought with the Spanish at the Battle of Glenshiel. So that's a big thing. Like this guy is a very loyal supporter of the cause. And he has been. He's faced several bouts of exile so on and so forth. So George Murray is experienced and among his peers is known as a very good military strategist. He's also a bit pig-headed and like my way or the highway type guy. So not the easiest person to get along with, but he's extremely smart and he knows what he's doing. So to compare that with O'Sullivan, who in my opinion, isn't quite on the same playing field as Murray, but is equally as pig-headed <laughs> as Charlie points out and Jamie points out. 
it's just tensions are really high and it's impossible for the Jacobite leaders to get anything accomplished with these two constantly at each other's throats. And we see this portrayed perfectly in my estimation from everything that I have read. I mean, guys, there are letters. I did not include this in my blog, but I'm going to tell you guys. So bonus feature. There were letters written by George Murray post Culloden saying how much of a freaking train wreck Culloden was because of O'Sullivan and his choices and his influence over the prince. So he firmly blames O'Sullivan for the crap fest that was Culloden. And I don't know, obviously that's one man's interpretation of the events that happened, but if that is remotely true and if O'Sullivan was 100% on board and pushing for Culloden to happen, then yes, I completely agree with Murray on it being O'Sullivan's fault. I suppose maybe I should have a historian on the show. Maybe they could shed some light on it. So if I have any historians out there that would like to be on the podcast to clarify this, please reach out to me and we will figure something out. So we're kind of at this stalemate. George Murray has rushed the Jacobite army to get the high ground because it's very important, especially in the ways that they used to fight wars. It was very important to have the high ground to be able to see in all directions and see your enemy coming, essentially. Plus, if you're shooting downhill and your enemy is running uphill, I mean, it's pretty obvious who has the better advantage, right? So Murray is like, I'm not freaking moving. We like busted our asses to get here. And now you want us to charge across boggy ground get weighed down in the mud, and basically be sitting ducks for the English to just have target practice with. So we really do see this juxtaposition of Murray versus O'Sullivan. I felt that the show did this really good with O'Sullivan being this rash and impulsive, like, well, I'm not just going to sit here and wait for the paint to dry, you know? Like, the army's right there. We just need to go after him. And Murray's like, if we go after him, we're all going to (laughs) die. Like, I don't understand why this is a problem. So these are the very, um, the voice of reason versus the voice of desire, I feel like. Fast forward, the Mr. Anderson character showed up and said, hey, I know a way around to have you guys take the British unawares. And it's like the clouds parted. And angels were singing. Ah! <laughs> um, and Jamie just looks at him. He's like, uh, we're going to do this, right? We need to do this. I hope you're going to say yes. And then Charlie is just beating around the effing bush. He's like, I really wish that John was here. I would love to hear what he has to say on it. <laughs> and Murray turns to him and goes, And I pray that the quartermaster is out securing much-needed vittles for this army. (laughs) Like, I pray to God he is nowhere in sight. You need to make this decision all on your own. Grow a pair, young man. (laughs) So Charlie does make the decision, and off they go. They're preparing for war, and everything is going to be hunky-dory. So that's where we're at in the grand scheme of things. Preparing for the Battle of Preston Pans and then actually getting to the battle. Obviously, it was a route. The Highland Army only lost around 50 men. The British Army lost much more than that. 
the entire thing only lasted about 15 minutes. So not a huge battle, but a very important victory for the Scots. And it kind of gave them this injection of motivation and adrenaline and like that high off of victory that, oh, maybe we can do this. So Preston Pans was instrumental in the momentum that the Jacobites had going forward. And granted, they lost that momentum. They pretty much hit a brick wall, but we will talk about that throughout the remainder of season two because we kind of see the momentum slow. The primary thing that I think is important, well, one of the things I think that is important, because there are a few in this episode, is Jamie and Dougal's evolving relationship. These two men, we talked about it a lot last week, right? Where they're constantly butting heads. They're two very alpha male personalities, right? The problem is, is that Dougal is a very unrestrained person. And I've been reading book one as we go through this book club. And that's something that was there from the very beginning. We don't personally see a lot of that in the show, but basically Dougal's inability to make mature and rational decisions is why he didn't end up being layered instead of column. (laughs) So just think about that. I mean, it's one of the reasons that he didn't have everybody's full support, not the whole story, but he's always been like this. And we really see that come out in him in this episode through his bloodlust, like, right? He's got his heart rate up. He's just gone through battle, but instead of coming back and helping take care of everybody and bask in the afterglow of victory, he stays on the battlefield and kills all of these injured redcoats. And then he comes back and is pissed that Claire is providing aid to the injured English. So the first thing that we really see where it's a marked change in Jamie and Dougal's relationship is when Jamie comes back from the meeting where he's in the council with all of the clan leaders and Lord George and Quartermaster O'Sullivan and Prince Charlie. And he comes back, everybody's tensions are super high, right? They're all tired of sitting around and doing nothing. You've got Angus being Angus and provoking. And then when he's provoked, he was like, okay, well, you want to fight? Let's go. And that's when (laughs) probably one of my favorite lines of the episode that has absolutely nothing to do with the rest of the episode, but I absolutely love it, is when Myrta stands up and said, "Uh put that blade down or I'll ram it up your ass so far you can taste it. I freaking love Murta, and more to the point, I love how Duncan Lacroix portrays Murta. Murta is not such a standout character in the books, but man, Duncan just brings him to life in a way that is absolutely fantastic, and I applaud him. But things don't resolve until Jamie shows up, and he says, is that a Dirk I see in your hand? And Angus backs off and puts it away. It's a very clear line drawn in the sand that Jamie is their commanding officer and they obey him to a T. 
it's very interesting, especially given the relationship that they had in season one, where Jamie was a respected member of their group, but he is also extremely young and clearly was lower in the hierarchy of things. So to see this evolving into Jamie being a person in charge that they respect his authority and actually listen to him is really great. And further to the point, Dougal has kind of accepted Jamie's role as well because Angus and Rupert are first and foremost loyal to Dougal. If Dougal was not okay with this, they would have all packed up their shit and left. So we see it already in how they immediately back off and they're like, okay. And then Jamie takes Dougal aside and kind of explains to him what happened in the meeting. Perhaps I'm reading too much into it, but I really felt like this was Jamie and Dougal reaching a point in their relationship where Dougal has accepted that Jamie is in the position of power, but Jamie is the type of person that doesn't flaunt his authority over others. He's more of a leader versus a boss. I always love that analogy that a boss will sit on top of his high horse and tell others how to do it and a leader will get in the trenches with them and help them. And I feel like Jamie is a leader. So Jamie comes to Dougal and honestly at the start of it is kind of just wanting to talk it through with him and say this is kind of where we're at. You know there's this bog in between our two armies Nobody's going to try to cross it. We don't know what's going to happen. And until someone tries to get more intel on this, nothing's going to happen. Jamie does something kind of remarkable, honestly, because, God, he gets more and more manipulative in every single episode. Like, you can just see his character evolving if you take the time to look at it. Outside looking in, he's just Jamie. He's the Jamie we know and love. But if you look at gradually how he internalizes things, he is kind of guiding Dougal into a situation where Jamie's going to get what he wants out of it and make Dougal feel good in the process. And I just find that so fascinating. So Jamie's like, yeah, we need somebody to navigate the terrain at the bottom and report back. It would be helpful if we had some dragoons, which Jamie brings up in the meeting in the council, that if we had cavalry, it would be unquestionable. Like, we could get a firm answer whether it was doable or not, because men on horseback weigh a lot more than infantry, and if men in horseback can make it across the bog, then infantry should have no issues whatsoever. So this is kind of where Jamie's at. He's like, well, I think that, you know, if we got somebody to go on horseback and navigate the terrain, we could learn more about the situation and whether this is even feasible. And you kind of see the light pop on for Dougal. And he volunteers for it. He's like, yeah, no problem. How far out are we talking? Like, and Jamie says, about 125 yards. And Dougal's like, oh, I was thinking more. 105. (laughs) Just pushing the envelope as far as he can go because that is just Dougal's personality, right? And Jamie's like, don't be reckless and stupid. You know, there's no need for that. But Dougal wants this opportunity to kind of catch Prince Charlie's attention and become a trusted advisor, if not a confidant for Charlie. 
So he's willing to take this risk for the betterment of the cause. And also a little bit of glory because Dougal wouldn't be Dougal without it. (laughs) And it does go a little bit sideways, but in the end, Dougal gets what he wants and Jamie gets what he wants. Dougal is seen as the brave hero who saved the army from disaster because he was brave enough to go down and verify that, you know what? No, we can't cross this ground. We're going to be sitting ducks if we do. And so Charlie makes the decision, no crossing the bog. Jamie's happy. He's spared all of his men. And Dougal got what he wanted, and he's a hero in Charlie's eyes. Problem solved. Case closed, right? Not. (laughs) Because fast forward to the end of the episode, and Dougal's bloodlust is absolutely out of control. We're talking about him finishing off injured English soldiers, and then he kills Lieutenant Foster. You know Lieutenant Foster as the only honorable redcoat in that whole posse that ended with Claire ending up having to marry Jamie because she got in deep with Black Jack Randall. That whole mess. And Foster was actually, like, really genuinely nice and concerned about Claire's honor and welfare. And the murder of him, essentially, I do consider it murder. I don't because it wasn't in the heat of battle and Dougal clearly did it for his own purposes out of his own anger. Foster did not have a life-threatening injury. It wasn't mercy. It was revenge. It was vengeance. Because Foster was just honest with Dougal and he's like, you know, I tell you this in all candor, but A war chief should know better. You may have won this battle, but you're never going to win the war. You can't defeat the British army. You can see Dougal's, like, the blackness come over Dougal's face. He's infuriated. Like, you don't tell Dougal McKenzie what to do, and you don't tell him that his hopes and dreams are stupid, you know? (laughs) Like, just don't do it. And Dougal kills him for it. It costs Foster his life. And so you really see how vengeful Dougal is and I did not appreciate that and it made me think to what happens at the end of the season and I'm like Dougal killed Foster out of rage and just it was cold-blooded murder you know it was not anything that he regretted in the grand scheme of things I don't think he regretted it one bit and to see what happens in Dragonfly and Amber, like, there's a clear-cut difference between what Jamie did in Dragonfly and Amber and what Dougal did in Preston Pants. So we can talk about it in more depth at the end of season two, if I remember to. <laughs> there is kind of a lot of evolution with Jamie and Dougal, ending in this scene where Charlie is just appalled by Dougal being like, you're helping these people. They're worse than the scum of the earth, you know? Why would you help them? And Jamie saves Dougal's ass and is like, Dougal McKenzie is a true warrior and we're going to need every warrior we can find to win this war. It all comes back around with Dougal being like, yeah, I see what you're doing and I thank you for saving me from myself, but I also see... I see you for what you are, and I know what you're doing. So the Jamie Dougal relationship hasn't really changed that much. There was a line I read in Outlander the other night where it said that 
basically Jamie enjoys the witty banter and argument that he gets with Dougal. Like he likes that mental stimulation. And I, I really, you can see it in the way that Sam and Graham portray their characters, especially when they are in a scene together, that they are almost two sides of the same coin. Yes, there are some key differences, but they are very, very similar and that their Mackenzie wit is unparalleled. Other relationships that we kind of see not necessarily evolve in this episode, but it's interesting to kind of look at how they parallel each other is Angus and Rupert versus Ross and Kincaid. They were purposefully created this way. So Ross and Kincaid were originally just offhand characters for the expedient of getting from point A to point B. And then in Preston Pans, they became much more important because the writers decided to use them as a means to an end. They wanted to reflect Angus and Rupert's relationship in someone else's. They wanted to show that there are friendships in this situation and that as a part of war, there are consequences to that. And you lose friends, you lose loved ones. You have innocent men killing innocent men. And so there are a lot of repercussions to war. And I think that was very important for the writers to understand and for the actors to portray in this episode, because it is about the consequences of war, which I 100% appreciate. So when Angus hears Ross and Kincaid talking about promising to look after each other's families if one of them is killed, it gets Angus thinking and he turns to Rupert and he basically bequeaths him everything that he has that's of any importance to him. But Angus and Rupert both, they don't have families, they don't have wives, they are basically all each other has except for their swords. And so that's what Angus is like, you can have my sword and my dirk. Oh, and you can have Scarlet the whore. <laughs> and Rupert's like, she's not yours to give. But that's just, it was so good to have these little flashes of humor inserted into an otherwise completely serious topic and episode. It was a very weighty conversation that was being had in this episode. A lot of death, a lot of injury, a lot of dark themes going on. So to have even a flash of humor was good to kind of like lighten the load off of the viewers. And of course, in all of this, Rupert is kind of brushing off Angus and just shoving his dark thoughts of preparation aside because Rupert doesn't want to think about it. He just wants to go and fight and be done with it. He doesn't want to think about him or Angus being killed, having to deal with the repercussions of that. He just wants to fight his fight. And I think that that is two very important types of people to recognize. You have the soldiers that are willing to admit that they are risking their lives and prepare their loved ones for the possibility that they may not return. And there are those who deny all danger and pretend everything is going to be okay to keep their own panic at bay, I think. So I thought it was interesting to see that two very, very close friends are on two different sides 
of this coin. I hate to keep using that metaphor, but I, I almost feel like that's the overarching theme of this episode. Two sides of the same coin. Something that was interesting is that from the beginning, it was agreed by the showrunners and the writers that a key character needed to die in this episode, but it was kind of an argument as to who it would be. And originally, when this episode was first being thought about, it was supposed to be Willie that was killed in this episode. But for scheduling reasons and contractual reasons, the actor that played Willie had other obligations, so he wasn't coming back. That's why they wrote him off as getting married and going to America with his wife's family. So it came down to it had to be Rupert or Angus. They knew it was too early for Dougal. Jamie's obviously not going to die. It's too early for Myrta. So it came down to really convince me who it is that needs to die. So it ended up Angus drew the short straw, I guess. And it was a horrific death scene in how sudden and unprepared the audience was to deal with it. Like, we're so focused on Rupert and is he going to be okay? And oh my God, he's probably going to get an infection and die. And then all of a sudden, after all the drama unfolds with Jamie and Dougal and Prince Charlie, Angus just keels over and is coughing up blood and there's literally nothing Claire can do. It's so tragic because of that. Like, Claire is so well prepared. She's better prepared than anybody else in the 18th century to tackle this issue of triage. But Angus has an injury that there's no overcoming. He's hemorrhaging internally. The chances of Claire even being able to save him if she had been in the 20th century with modern day equipment would have been extremely slim, let alone in the 18th century where... Angus is running on adrenaline. He's worried about his friend. He's not thinking about himself. And then before he realizes there's even a problem, it's too late. And his final words are him staring up at Claire, blood coming out of his mouth, and him saying, save me, mistress. Those men have such faith in Claire. Like, that must have just been a knife to the gut for her. For him to be pleading with her to save him and her literally able to do nothing. Like Jamie's like, isn't there anything you can do? And she just has to shake her head. Like there's absolutely nothing she can do. So it was a really terrible scene in that sense. And then to see Rupert gravely injured, hoist himself out of bed and go get Angus's sword, which he bequeathed to him and just go back and sit on the bed and hug that sword to him. Like, the guy just lost the most important person in the world to him, and it's so awful to watch that. I thought Grant O'Rourke did a really good job, because there's no words. It's just all the faces of all of the actors, and I think they did a really great job, all of them. Even the the sheer horror on Grant McTavish's face, he's just got these wide eyes, like, he he can't believe what he's seeing, and then there's Claire, who's terrified and she knows she can't do anything either they're all just kind of like oh my god and then it's over and he's dead and I feel like that is such an accurate depiction of war of life in general really I mean you can be going along about your business and then boom you can have an aneurysm or a heart attack or you know it's just the way life is but 
we're so used to these grand gestures and these huge dramatic scenes, especially in a show like Outlander, that such a sudden and unexpected death really hits home harder than a lot of the really emotional deaths. So I really appreciated the craft of this. Something I want to go back to real quick because I forgot to mention it, but it really impresses me every time I read it. I talked about the Battle of Preston Pans a little bit, and one of the primary reasons that the Scots were so successful at Preston Pans was because the entire battlefield was cloaked in this really thick fog like you couldn't see 10 feet in front of you. Exactly like it was in the show. Like, that's how it happened in history. And so they knew if they were going to have to portray this accurately, they were going to have to have fog. As a matter of just a technical standpoint, it is literally impossible to get a thick fog on a battlefield, an open-air field, because it just vanishes as soon as they pump it out. So they were really faced with a logistical nightmare in this respect, and somebody had the genius idea to get a huge tent, like one of those party tents or like the tents that you see at festivals, and put it on a field and pump it full of smoke or fog. And that's where they did this entire choreographed sequence And I just find that so amazing because you can't tell, you know, because the fog is so thick and it was a great way to have like consistent lighting and not have to worry about the wind blowing this fake fog away and making sure that it had the right consistency. So really, really cool. Honestly, I, I find that sort of stuff fascinating as far as the behind the scenes part of it. So I wanted to make sure to mention that to you guys. I kind of want to end this episode by talking about a few different little scenes because as much as this episode was about the grand scheme of things and the progression of the Jacobite rebellion and all of that, it's also a great character episode. And Iris Stephen Bear wrote this episode and you guys know, I love the episodes that he writes. I think that he does a fantastic job of weaving these characters that we know and love into these very important storylines so that you don't just have a plot piece. You don't just have a character piece. You have these great combinations of the characters that we love having these sweet scenes or these horrible goodbyes all woven into the fabric of a huge battle. Because it could easily be turned into a war film where it's all people getting blown up and shot and having their arms cut off. It could easily happen, and somehow Ira Stephen Bear manages to make it all one cohesive, great piece of television. The first scene that I want to mention is right before the Battle of Preston Pans. Murta is sharpening his dirk, and Jamie comes up to him and makes a comment about, well, if you sharpen that anymore, it's going to be a needle. <laughs> And something's on Murta's mind. Like, Murta is not a man of many words. He's kind of a quiet character that's always there and has Jamie's back and you know he's there, but doesn't have a lot of dialogue. He has more dialogue in the show than he does in the books, but he's still a relatively quiet background figure. And so Jamie knows that something's up with him and he asks him about it. 
And Myrta said that basically he's really struggling with the concept of war. Myrta has never fought in a war before. And he, he brings up the point that it's much different than your everyday clan life. If you're in a cattle raid and you're killed, you may be the only person killed. Or if you kill someone, they may be the only person killed. If someone does die in that way, their body is taken back and they're mourned. And there are stories told about them and, you know, they're remembered. And in the grand scheme of war, what does one person matter, is what Myrta is saying. When history is told, if one or two people is killed, is that going to make the history books? Probably not. Is the death of one or two people going to make the difference between victory and defeat? Probably not. So that's what Myrta is struggling with in this scene. He's saying, you know, we're getting ready to fight a battle where... It's not going to matter unless 500 or 1,000 men die. And if that many people die, what happens to the one person? You don't remember one person's name if 500 people die. It's recorded in the history books as 500 casualties. There isn't a complete roster of every man that's lost. And so what does it matter? What do I matter is what Murta's saying. That's what he's struggling with. He's just having doubts and he's feeling conflicted about it. And Jamie kind of stands there with him and he's thinking about the past few months. And he says, you know, I almost lost my marriage in Paris trying to prevent all of this from happening. And he did. Him and Claire were at breaking point. They were both so stressed out trying to stop the future from coming that they weren't focusing on each other. And they weren't focusing on their child. And so they did almost lose their marriage. It was at a breaking point. And they've managed to put it back together. But Jamie's saying, he's like, did it matter? You know, we all have those things that we dedicate so much time and energy to only for them to amount to nothing. And that's what he's telling Myrta. He says, if it's any consolation, I feel much the same way you do. Because he gets it. He's like, yeah, you could put everything you have into this cause and it may cost you everything and people probably aren't going to remember that. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't matter. And I, genuinely, I love seeing scenes between Jamie and Myrta. I think that's a relationship that even not getting into the season four disaster of it all, because I know that's a hot button topic. Jamie and Myrta's relationship is very valuable to the show. And even being a book reader, I can see that. That the adaptive choice to make Myrta a bigger character was probably a good one. So, like I said, not touching season four, season five, because that's a whole other beast. But in regards to season two and making Myrta more important to the plot, I, I think that that was a good choice. So the next little scene was all of the goodbyes in the surgery area before the battle. This was so heartbreaking. Like, heartbreaking's a weird term, especially in the context of, like, some of the things that we see in this show. It just gave me a twinge in my stomach, you know? It's one of those things where 
you kind of feel like you want to tear up and you just feel like something's going to happen, but you're not sure what it is and you're not sure why you feel that way. That's how I feel watching this scene. I mean, obviously we know if you've seen it more than once, you know what's going to happen. But I remember watching this for the first time and like, oh my God, one of these people is going to die. You just know it. You feel it in your bones. And that's what Claire is going through. She's fought in wars before, but she's never had to look at these four really close friends of hers and send them off to battle and wonder if any of them are going to come back. And that's what she's facing. She knows that the Scottish army is going to win the day, but who's she going to lose in the process? And so (laughs) Angus is like, oh, are you going to kiss me goodbye? Like, I'd hate to think that I'd be laying on a field bleeding to death and my last thought be of the fact that you denied me my final request. Uh, And she says, you are shameless. He really is. He just, he loves Claire, man. He really loves her. And so then Rupert is like, would you stop? You know, you're bringing bad juju into the place. Just knock it off. Everything is going to be fine. And then he looks at Claire and he says, I'm not going to tell you goodbye. We'll share a stiff dram when I get back and celebrate our victory. Which really led you to believe that Rupert was going to be the one to die. And they led you in that direction. It was a great misdirect. I honestly felt like that everything pointed to Rupert dying. And then, bam, like, Angus. Ah, just, mm, (laughs) Hits you in the feels. So after Rupert and Angus leave, Claire has this brief moment with Myrta. Lord knows where Jamie is. He's in the back doing something. And she says, watch over Jamie. And he says, always. Which hits me even harder after watching (laughs) this past season. Like, oh my god. But Myrta is just always there. Like, he swore to Jamie's mother that he would always look after him. And so it's not even a question. Like, yes, I will have Jamie's back. And it's not even something he has to promise Claire because it's a promise he's made to himself and to Jamie's mother. So that was a really good moment. And then, of course, you have the goodbye between Jamie and Claire, which isn't even really a goodbye, but it's one of my favorites because there are hardly any words. It's all in the eyes. And they have this great kiss, just full on going at it. And like, they're never going to see each other again, that kind of kiss. And she pulls back and she says, on your way, soldier. And he gives her this little cockeyed smile and backs up and bows and leaves. It's powerful in its own right. Like, it just speaks to the fact that you don't always need words. Words can't always convey everything that you have to say. And that they know how they feel about each other. And they know how each other feels about them. And they don't need words to say that. But it also kind of gets me thinking about season five with a similar pre-battle goodbye. And I like that goodbye a lot better. But it just... The whole scene with all the goodbyes just made me like on the edge of my seat, like so tense at the same time, just so sad. 
you're getting all the vibes, all the bad vibes. <laughs> and you really feel for Claire. I think that was the best part about how this was all done was that you are feeling how she's feeling. She's worried about, am I ever going to see these guys again? And so it really puts you in the perspective of our character. I just applaud the entire team. Philip John, who directed this episode, I think personally did a phenomenal job. Phenomenal. The last little bit that I want to talk about is the very last scene of the episode. When everybody's drinking and celebrating, but then you have Ross and Rupert that are singing this song. The song is called Down Among the Dead Men, and it was published in 1728 and was just known as a drinking song. But the lyrics, if you look at them, are really fitting for this episode. I mean, I know they don't put anything into Outlander just for the hell of it. There is so much symbolism and kind of subtext to it. But this song is the toast to health, liberty, and prosperity. And it's saying that anybody who speaks against those things can just go down among the dead men. Like, let him lie there. That's kind of a great way to end this episode because it's a double entendre to the friends that these two men just lost. They lost their best friends, Kincaid and Angus. So there's a real sober ending to this. Like, it's celebration, but it's not. It's a very eye-opening gesture to the truth of war that... Also, I think, was brought into it when Fergus is kind of just in this catatonic state over this man that he killed. Like, it's not all gore and glory, as Kincaid put it. And I think that, especially for young boys and for men that have never fought before, there's this idea that it's all for honor and for Scotland, you know? But it's a real terrible thing. And so I think that this episode really tackled that um, line of thought and did a good job with it. So that's where I'm going to leave it for my thoughts. As far as performance of the episode, I thought Graham McTavish did a really, really great job with Dougal and like showing yet another side to him. I mean, we know that Dougal has a very testosterone-fueled personality, right? He always wants to be on top of the heap. But the bloodlust and just the out-of-control warrior state of him in this episode was kind of even shocking. I don't like Dougal as a character. It's not even something as far as, like, oh, I can't believe that he would do that. He's such a good guy. Like, you guys know, I don't like him. And even I was a little bit taken aback. I was like, oh my God, he's just murdering all of these people. And like, when he stabbed Foster, that's when I was like, not cool, bro. Like, not cool. <laughs> so I thought that Graham McTavish did a really great job in this episode, but I have to hand it to Stephen Walters because it's his last episode of Outlander. And I felt like he showed so many different sides. I mean, notoriously Angus is all about the comedic relief and we really saw some good scenes with him 
just hovering over Rupert and like so worried about his friend and considering his own mortality with at the fire just all of these little scenes that really stood out to me as something that we don't normally see Angus do in a scene so it really just kind of took my attention and um yeah good job Stephen Walters so that's performance of the episode and then quote of the episode is a good one <laughs> when Dougal has just had his ass saved from being pulled off the muster roll of the Jacobite army. And he goes to Jamie and he says, I think you lad, truly. And I swear that I'll not give you cause to regret your generosity, but I know what you're up to. You champion me and you exile me both at the same time. That's a plan worthy of my brother Colum. It's so true, guys. <laughs> Jamie is learning and he's evolving and he's a man of action, but he's a man of thought as well. And we are seeing that in spades in these last few episodes. I love it. I love it. I love that quote. And I love the duel. It sees what's happening. And this quote is almost just a touche kid. Touche. You know, (laughs) you win. I'm giving you the win. So love, love, love it. As always, we're going to take a minute to talk about some of what you guys had to say. Seriously, guys, though, we've had a dip in, like, people participating in the comments, and I really do like hearing what you guys have to say. So if you guys want your voices heard, by all means, leave a comment in the episode thread. I put one in Facebook and one in Instagram every week on usually the Saturday or the Sunday before I record to give you guys the chance to have a few days to post on there. So make sure to leave a comment. This week, Rhonda Creed on Instagram reached out to me. She says, Jamie and Claire's farewell kiss was as passion as you get as she sends him on his way and loved Jamie's bowed his lady as he goes. Yes, I mentioned this in the episode. I love their goodbye. There's something so powerful about not needing words. So. Loved it. Thanks for reaching out, Rhonda. And then Jamie Hamilton DePriest says, OMG, if he said mark me once that season, he said it a thousand times. <laughs> um, This was a lot of the comments that I got. Guys, you don't like Prince Charlie? Like, what? Why? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I totally get why you don't like him. He annoys the piss out of me as well. So... <laughs> I'm glad I'm not alone, but apparently one of you, uh, Joanne Carls, turned it into a drinking game where you take a drink every time Prince Charlie says, mark me. (laughs) And I said, well, that certainly would have made season two a lot more interesting. So I love that. I'm going to have to try that next time I watch with a group. I mean, I don't know that a drinking game would be too fun to play if you're watching Outlander on your own. But if you are with a group of people, I'm sure that after (laughs) a beer or a glass of wine or hard liquor, the commentaries on some of these episodes would probably be hilarious. So, um, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. (laughs) So those are my two comments this week. Nothing too cerebral. Yeah, mostly just talking about voicing distaste for Prince Charlie, which can't say I blame you guys. (laughs) Alrighty, 
Well, that about wraps up everything that I have on 210 Preston Pans. Make sure that you guys join me next week for 211 Vengeance is Mine. It's an interesting one. This is the first episode that Diana Gabaldon actually wrote for the screen. So I think it's a favorite of a lot of people's and can't wait to get into the nitty gritty of it. But that's next week. So for now, I will let you guys go. Stay safe out there and I'll chat at you later. Bye.